August 27, 1962, Coventry Township, Ohio. It's the end of summer vacation, and 12-year-old Marion Brubaker is looking forward to starting 7th grade at Irwin Middle School. Marion, one of four daughters born to Ruth and the Reverend Claire Brubaker, wants to grow up to be a piano teacher. She loves music. The night before, she performed a duet with one of her sisters at their church. Her other passion is reading. And that's on her mind this day, as she asks for permission to go to the Portage Lakes branch of the Summit County Public Library. That's on Manchester Road. Not a quick trip. It's more than three miles from her house on Killian. But she's got her bike, and it's got a basket. And she's made the trip many times before. She's pretty self-sufficient, that Marion. At the library, she picks out four books, some reading material to finish off the summer. Princess in Denim, Travel in Titan, Sue Barton Visiting, and Secrets of the Martian Moon. She slips them into the basket on the front of her bike and then runs an errand for her mom. She pedals farther up the street to Scott's, a store in the Coventry Plaza, to purchase a greeting card. Then, the long ride back. At 3.30 p.m., Marion crosses Main Street at Portage Lakes Drive. She's just a block from her home on Killian. The last leg of her journey goes through the woods. It's a well-worn diagonal shortcut that locals use to save the extra steps of walking to the intersection. She knows the path will deposit her onto a farm field. Her house, just out of sight on the other side. She almost makes it. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and BeaconJournal.com, this is Exhumed, a three-part series that examines the four exhumations conducted for Summit County authorities in the past 12 years. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this podcast are Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my Ohio Mysteries co-host, Steve Yoder. Exhumations can give law enforcement a second chance at solving some stubborn riddles, especially as DNA and other forms of forensic technology advance in ways not dreamed of even a couple of years ago. But it doesn't always work. In two of those four Summit County cases, a re-autopsy of remains did not shed new light on the old case. In this episode, we share the stories of Marion Brubaker and Linda Comar, two murders that are likely to remain unsolved unless a killer grows a conscience. First, Marion. Marion. 
Marion Brubaker's body was still warm when Summit County Sheriff's deputies arrived. Detectives would determine she had been killed no more than 40 minutes before they were called to the scene. And the first person they wanted to question was the 15-year-old boy who had led them to her. He didn't have a good excuse for exactly where he was at or what he was doing other than he was back in the woods a lot. That's Detective Larry Brown. Marion's case is written into the history of the Summit County Sheriff's Office, where it's been around for a third of the department's existence. Generations of investigators have tried to crack it. In 2012, it was Detective Brown's turn. Larry Brown had never heard of Marion Brubaker until he became a deputy in 1993. And that was all the more surprising because his childhood playground had been hers. He traveled the same wooded path Marion took that fateful day. I moved out to the Porch Lakes in the sixth grade. So from sixth grade through 12th grade, I lived out off South Main Street on Whitefriar Drive. And I used to use those trails to cut back and forth up into the Cottage Grove area. I had friends that lived back in those neighborhoods. So I would cut through there all the time. My pedal bikes, on my dirt bikes, walking, you name it. I was through those trails quite a bit as a child. Nearly 60 years later, not much has changed at the northeast corner of Maine and Killian. It looks just the same as it did on the last day of Marion's life. That made it easier for Brown to visualize the scene when he read the statement by the 15-year-old schoolboy. The boy was wandering around the woods, a favorite pastime of his in the summer, when he came across a bike lying beneath an apple tree, books and a girl's purse spilling out of the handle basket. He leafed through the items, then dropped them and continued down the path. When he reached the end of the path to the east, he saw a farmer on a tractor. They made eye contact. The boy said he then turned and went back into the woods and back to the bike. And that's when he saw there was more. A few feet away, off the beaten path, was the nearly naked body of a girl. The boy ran home to a white bungalow just on the opposite side of Main Street and found his dad. I think there's a dead girl up in the woods, he said. The father called the sheriff. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
the boy led investigators to Marion's body. These woods were not part of a park or near any public gathering space, so quickly investigators decided whoever did this. It was likely someone from the neighborhood who knew the shortcut, maybe even knew Marion. The girl had a two-inch wound on the back of her head. A patch of blood-soaked dirt and bits of hair on the trail told investigators where that blow had taken place. But then her assailant grabbed an arm and a leg and dragged her face down over the ground to where she was found. The coroner found dirt in her nose and lungs. Did that mean she was unconscious and never had the chance to fight her attacker? Marion's shirt and bra had been pulled up to her neck. Her socks and shoes had been placed neatly next to her head. Her underwear and plaid shorts had been pulled off and placed over her face. Did that mean her killer couldn't bear to see her open eyes? Did it speak to guilt, shame, remorse? The coroner determined the cause of death was strangulation. Enough force had been applied to her neck to break blood vessels up to her ears. But she hadn't been raped. Why not? There was a reasonable answer. At 4.12 p.m., after Marion had entered the woods, a cruiser had been traveling down Main Street, lights flashing, sirens blaring, on its way to a car accident on Killian. It passed within 50 yards of the crime scene. Did the commotion frighten and interrupt her attacker? Investigators also found it curious that the only fingerprints they could find were a partial print on a handlebar and a print on one of the books. There should have been more. Who wiped down all of her effects? Detectives only knew of one person for certain who had access to all of the evidence, the schoolboy. They were also fixated on the way he looked. The boy's shirt was torn, his zipper down, and there were scratches on his skin. He brushed it off as the result of playing in the woods. Investigators weren't so sure. The boy and his parents agreed to go to the station, where he was interrogated for a straight ten hours. During that time, elements of his story changed. At first, he denied knowing who Marion was, but the previous school year, they had both gone to Irwin. He finally acknowledged he knew of her. They got him to admit he had wiped down the bike, the books, the purse. He said he did it because after seeing the body, he regretted having handled them. The boy agreed to a polygraph. The results were inconclusive. The sheriff's office finally turned him over to the detention home with the intent of keeping him in custody until they sorted things out. That's when his parents shut everything down, got an attorney, and had him released. But it was a short trip home. In questioning neighbors, deputies had learned that in the summer of 1960, the boy had been accused of molesting another girl in the same woods. And so on September 14, he was taken into custody again. This time, a juvenile court judge declared him delinquent for lying to police and placed him on probation. On the advice of a court psychologist, 
the boy was sent to live with his grandmother in West Virginia. He stayed there for a month, then returned mid-October to begin his sophomore year at Coventry High School. The boy continued to deny killing Marion. And authorities couldn't prove otherwise. There wasn't a shred of evidence that tied him to her death. And so the boy tried to move on with his life. He spent the next summer working and trying to save money to buy a car. His mom told reporters, He tells me he has forgotten about it, but I don't think he has. I'm not bitter about the police. It's their job and they were doing it. My son grew up overnight. Faith kept us going. And so the case went cold. Two and a half years flew by. Marion's family was upset. How could her murder not have been solved? The scene was fresh, the body warm, the area undisturbed. The Reverend Brubaker was critical, telling a reporter that the sheriff waited too long to ask Akron police for help. They didn't secure the area. They didn't even have the coroner come to see the body at the scene. Marion had been removed from the woods and taken to the hospital, which is where she was declared dead and the coroner got his first look. There was also tension between the sheriff and Akron police, who argued the deputies didn't question neighbors immediately after the crime, when memories were sharp and they might have been able to connect something they had seen or heard. And then there was this. The schoolboy was not the only one in the woods that day. Investigators found a girly magazine at a site that looked to be someone's personal hangout, with a chair and a cold campfire. The schoolboy admitted he knew that magazine was there and had looked through it. But it wasn't his. The owner was a 35-year-old man who acknowledged that not only was the porn his, but he had seen Marion in the woods that day. He wasn't sure of the time, didn't know if she was coming or going. And like the boy, the man had stepped out of the woods that afternoon and saw the farmer on the tractor. The farmer was Brother Augustine, a monk from the nearby Prague Monastery, which is today's Interval Brotherhood home. While both the man and the boy had seen the monk, the monk said he had only seen one person, and he didn't know which. Only that whoever he saw quickly turned and went back into the woods. Then, in March of 1964, Two and a half years after Marion's murder came news that a third male had seen Marion in the woods that day. His name was William Lewis, a 49-year-old itinerant from Hubbard, Ohio, who occasionally came to Akron to visit family. Lewis was a revelation that came out of the 1964 primary elections. A former Summit County Sheriff's Deputy, Thomas Anderson, was running against his old boss, Sheriff Robert Campbell. 
Anderson accused his opponent of bungling the Brubaker case by not following up on one of the most significant tips. The tip was this. The day of Marion's murder, William Lewis was at the Greyhound bus station in Akron, where he told a ticket agent named Ted Bell that he had seen a girl's body in the woods. Lewis was a frequent loiterer, known to the Greyhound staff, and the ticket agent brushed off his comment. That is, until he learned about Marion's murder. The ticket agent knew Thomas Anderson, a recently retired deputy, so the tip was passed on to Anderson, who said he then told the sheriff's office. But Anderson insisted the office never pursued the tip. Sheriff Campbell, meanwhile, said all of that was news to him, that his department had never heard of William Lewis before. Whatever the case, Campbell's detectives followed up and brought Lewis in. Lewis underwent a couple of days of intense questioning, repeatedly denying he had hurt Marion. But on the third day, he confessed. He told detectives he had prayed over the matter and that God told him to tell the truth. So he recounted the story of how he'd bludgeoned, then strangled Marion before running off. After his confession, he told his interrogators, You were right. I feel much better now. To support his story, Lewis was taken to the crime scene. He directed detectives to where Marion's body was, even laid down to show her position on the ground. Lewis was charged with first-degree murder. But from day one, there were skeptics. For starters, every detail Lewis shared, from how Marion looked to her exact position in the woods, had been described in detail by the press. More concerning, the man had a history of mental illness. His record at institutions where he had spent time reported him to be feeble-minded, but never violent. Reverend Brubaker spoke with Lewis for an hour. He didn't share details of the conversation that he had had with a man who had confessed to strangling his daughter. But Reverend Brubaker wasn't completely sold. He admits that he did it, Reverend Brubaker told a reporter. However, I'm not sure. There still are things, in my opinion, that need looking into. Less than a quarter of a mile away from the Brubaker home, another family was relieved that all eyes were on Lewis. The family in that white bungalow on Main Street, where a 15-year-old son had been the top suspect in a murder case for nearly three years. The boy talked to a reporter after Lewis was charged. He said his life had become one long nightmare. You don't realize how it feels to be telling the truth, know you're telling the truth, and know that some people don't believe you, he said. But the case against William Lewis didn't stick. A grand jury refused to indict him. He was taken to the Lima State Hospital and declared insane. An interest in him as a suspect Faded. Marion's case 
also faded from public view. But Sheriff's detectives never forgot. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. When Detective Larry Brown pulled out the boxes upon boxes of files in 2012 he quickly came to the same conclusion that many of his predecessors did. I know the the, the 15-year-old at the time, I mean, he seemed like the prime suspect. At that point in time, back in 1962, you did have a 15-year-old with cuts on his hands. Um, You did have the 15-year-old that failed several polygraph tests. Now, I don't know how accurate they were back in 1962, but he did fail several uh, polygraph tests. He did have the torn shirt. He didn't have a, a good excuse for exactly where he was at or what he was doing. He claimed that he that he was torn by prickers and tree limbs and stuff like that. That's what he did claim. Or was that evidence Marion had been conscious and fought back? She's going to have, she's going to defend herself. It's, it's a reaction. She's going to defend her. She's going to kick. She's going to scratch. She's going to do whatever. I believe that's, that's how he would have gotten the, the cuts on his hand. Even though DNA technology wasn't available in 1962, it was common to scrape a victim's nails for things like blood, fibers, or other types of evidence. But Brown couldn't find any report that this had been done. When I got involved in 2012, we reviewed everything, and that's why I know of the evidence and what was submitted and how many times it was submitted. The only thing that was not submitted, which I found, which we would definitely do, was because of the violent crime, a victim's going to have self-defense wounds or markings. Her fingernails were never scraped. They were never clipped for DNA or fiber. So when we found that that was one of the the only thing that was not taken or was not submitted, that's what uh, got us to do the exemption of the body and do the search warrant for that to collect the fingernails. Detective Brown found one of Marion's surviving siblings to let the family know. They they didn't want to talk about the case. Uh, Now, I only talked to, I believe it was the oldest sister, 
they, you know, they, they were hurt because it was never solved. They understood what we were doing. They were happy with what we were doing, but in the same matter, they technically didn't want to discuss it or bring it up. So, but they were happy that, that we gave them the courtesy of, of letting them know what we were doing and why. A week before Thanksgiving in 2014, Marion was removed from her grave at Hillside Memorial Park on Canton Road. That day we did get the body. It was in good shape. Uh, they were worried, you know, if it would have been filled with water or something, you know. But, but it was actually, she was in, in very good shape. Uh, she was transported to the medical examiner's office where uh, Lisa Kohler did a, a full exam on her and did get uh, the fingernails as part of the evidence that we needed in this case. She collected that, um, we sealed all that off, we got that all shipped to the Bureau of Criminal Investigations in Richfield for DNA and fiber testing. And then the body was uh, placed back in the burial ground the next day. To be honest, Brown wasn't holding his breath. The director at the funeral home who handled Marion's service back in 1962 cautioned that his late grandfather, who had prepared Marion's body, would have been thorough. Uh, he said that his grandfather was very, very meticulous and that he, unfortunately for us, probably scoured the body so that she looked like an angel. We hoped that maybe he would not have gone underneath her fingernails to clean her hands up or anything, but it was a chance that, that they would have been tampered with, you know, unknowingly just to prepare for burial. While Brown waited for the Bureau of Criminal Investigation to report their lab results, he went to the only other potential source for new information that was available to him. The schoolboy himself. In 2014, he was still living in the Akron area, though now 67 years old. And I, and I, I wanted to let him know that we did reinvestigate, we did reopen, we did exhume the body, we did get the fingernails that we were looking for, checking for his DNA, we were checking for fibers from the shirt that we had collected that had been done and had successfully been done. Now, I technically didn't have the results back by then, but I, I let him know that we did have that process. The man took the news calmly and repeated his denial that he had anything to do with Marion's death. Then he declined to take another polygraph asked for an attorney, and refused to answer further questions. Brown did find other people willing to talk. The thing with him was, is, is when we got involved in, in 2012, we started reaching out to family members and people that he was aware of. Brown learned the man had married a woman with children, and years later, during their divorce, she accused him of sexually abusing her daughters. The only bad thing was is they handled everything in-house. Nobody reported anything to Children's Services. Nobody reported anything through law enforcement. They handled it through on the household, and then they um, divorced and never spoke again. Someone else told Brown that there were times that the man would get drunk and want to talk about Marion's death in a way that made everyone uncomfortable. And we'd also had uh, information of people telling us that, that he, had, he, he would get intoxicated and talk about the incident with, with Marion, and they believed that they did this, that he did this. But did he talk about it because he felt guilty, or simply because it had consumed his life 
is the case's top suspect. The BCI sped up the results on Marion's fingernails, but it didn't help. There was no DNA. Marion's case was returned to the dust-covered evidence shelves at the Summit County Sheriff's Office. This was looked into before we got it eight times, eight different times this was reopened by different uh, detectives. You, you have more paperwork, more paperwork, more paperwork just getting thrown, you know, property going out to BCI, coming back from BCI. And so this is, this is a pretty heavy case file. We don't have any other, other evidence. Everything we've had, we've exhausted everything that we had, every avenue every witness, and on these type of cases, time is not on your side. There's only one way Marion's murder will be solved, Brown said. Right now, it would take a confession. To this point, our series has covered three of the four exhumations done for Summit County authorities in the past 12 years. This is the final one. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Her name was Linda Comar, a 45-year-old, attractive, intelligent, and vivacious woman living in Cuyahoga Falls. Her pride and joy were her three daughters, all between those hectic and explorative ages of 11 through 17. One of Linda's biggest talents was juggling their schedules with her own very busy calendar. She was kind of wacky and crazy and zany. I will always have a picture of Linda bringing her daughters to voice lessons and having, uh, I don't know, almost a backpack that was like a football player on her back with all their sometimes curlers and coming in because she would run so much. She did everything for those kids and she would sit there and curl her hair and then she'd get up and say. <laughs> That's Ron Hazlett. He was, and still is, a voice teacher. Back then, he counted Linda and her daughters among his students. Ron knew Linda through her second biggest passion, musical theater. She was known to the local acting troops at the Coach House Theater and at Weathervane Community Playhouse, where she performed and sang in several productions over the years. 
As a matter of fact, here's a clip of Linda singing soprano in the role of the Fairy Queen in the Coach House production of Babes in Toyland way back in 1991. Life was perhaps a little more carefree back then, but by 1997, things had taken a difficult turn. Linda and her husband Richard, a teacher at Hudson High School, were in the middle of a divorce. They were working out a settlement and trying to learn how to co-parent. It was just very difficult. You know, it wasn't something that she ever thought she would be going through. And having children involved in the mix is is always difficult. That's another theater friend and one of Linda's closest allies, Lindy Lincecum. But Linda had something to distract her. She'd thrown herself into a new role at a University of Akron production of Into the Woods. And in June of 1997, the show was just a couple of weeks from opening. She, she was really enjoying that role. She really loved it. It was a show both of us really loved, and so she was very happy with it. She was always very excited and very upbeat when I talked to her all the time. It was, in fact, I tried to call her that night, and I thought, oh, shoot, I can't call her. She's going to be at rehearsal. The night Lindy is talking about is June 12th. Just before 5 a.m., firefighters in Cuyahoga Falls responded to a call from one of Linda's neighbors on Lehigh Avenue. Smoke was pouring from the windows of Linda's one-and-a-half-story Cape Cod house. The firefighters were on the scene in five minutes. The house was locked. They forced their way inside. Linda was the only occupant. Her three daughters had spent the night at their father's. The Summit County Medical Examiner's Office would determine Linda had died of smoke inhalation, but added that it couldn't be certain of the manner of her death. That's because there was something that raised eyebrows among inspectors. The fire, whatever caused it, was not electrical in nature, and it appeared to have originated in two different places. One fire in the first floor bedroom where Linda's body was discovered, and another at the foot of the basement steps. Evidence was gathered and sent to the state fire marshal's office, but the results were inconclusive. There was no evidence of a crime. Given the emotionally challenging time Linda had been living through, police briefly considered the idea of suicide but Linda's friends said no way. Linda was was a strong person. She dealt with a lot, and she never gave up. She did not give up. Linda did not 
party, like didn't subject herself to large amounts of alcohol or anything to make her depressed. So I can't see her doing that. It just didn't make sense to me. Four months after the fire, the Cuyahoga Falls Police Department moved the case to inactive status. A limbo that meant the department had no leads to pursue, but that they would periodically take another look. And as the 10th anniversary of the fire approached, detectives did just that. In November of 2006, two investigators dusted off the old files and explored some old evidence in light of new technology. The detectives never publicly explained what they'd found, but it was something that convinced other Summit County agencies to change their minds. That fire was no accident. Fire department officials reclassified the fire as aggravated arson. The Summit County Medical Examiner's Office changed their ruling on Linda's death to homicide. And Cuyahoga Falls Police moved her case onto their active investigation list. And one of the tools they decided to apply to the case was exhumation. In April of 2008, Linda's body was removed from a mausoleum in Rose Hill Cemetery in Fairlawn with the hope that a second autopsy might reveal something more about how she died. A few months later, an Akron Beacon Journal report on the exhumation revealed it did not end up providing any special insight into the case. Investigators were able to apply some advanced forensic techniques not previously available. But, in the words of Captain Tom Poza, commander of the Falls Investigation Division at the time, there was no magic DNA to crack the case. Cuyahoga Falls Police and the Summit County Medical Examiner's Office both declined to speak with us about this case stating that it is still open and active. It's been 23 years since Linda died. The years have dimmed some of those memories of the ones who knew and loved her. When Lindy and Ron talk about their theater days with Linda, they often rely on each other to put together names and dates and circumstances. But they've never forgotten how Linda made them feel and how she affected their lives. I think she made me want to be a better musician. I, oh, she always, she was always trying to help me with my singing because I never had much confidence in myself. And she was really great like that. And I'm just so happy that she was a part of my life. This is the conclusion of our three part series, Exhumed. If you have any information in any of these cases, please call the appropriate law enforcement office. In the case of Linda Pagano, because her case went from being a missing persons case to a homicide, authorities are reinvestigating from the start. They are trying to locate her boyfriend at the time of her disappearance, Steve Wilson. Because of his common name, this has been a challenge. If you can help, please call Cleveland Metro Parks Police Department at 440-331-5530. In the case of Linda Comar, 
anyone with information about her murder is asked to call the Cuyahoga Falls Detective Bureau at 330-971-8334. And in the case of Marion Brew Baker, anyone with information is asked to call Detective Larry Brown. He's with the Summit County Sheriff's Office, and he can be reached at 330-643-8637. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.